You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Today we're going to take a look at three sides of the same coin. The coin center, that is. Perhaps the most recognizable tower in Portland's downtown skyline. Using words like tower and skyline, though, actually gives me pause, because height restrictions enacted in the mid-20th century mean that Portland does not have many really actually truly tall buildings. Our tallest building, the Wells Fargo Center, is 546 feet, and that's about 40 stories. But by comparison, Seattle's tallest building, the Columbia Center, is nearly twice as tall, at 937 feet and 76 stories. In San Francisco, the Salesforce Tower is 1,070 feet, or 61 stories. In Los Angeles, the Wiltshire Grand Center stands at 1,100 feet, or 73 stories. No wonder they call us Stumptown. Even so, at 509 feet and 35 stories, the Coin Center stands out on our skyline not simply because of its height, or the relative lack of height here overall, but because of how the building tapers towards the top, culminating in a pyramid. It's reminiscent, I think, of classic Art Deco skyscrapers of the 1920s, like New York City's iconic Chrysler building especially, uh, even though the Coin Center was actually completed much later in 1984. Stylistically, the time period this building came from, the 1980s, was largely about postmodernism, a channeling of historic styles that usually came off in an exaggerated, cartoonish, quickly dated manner, like the Portland building by Michael Graves completed a few blocks away in 1982 and the subject of our fourth episode this season. But the Coin Center, which arrived just two years after the Portland building, is a very different animal. Designed by Portland's largest architecture firm, Zimmergunzel Frasca, better known as ZGF, it is decidedly not postmodern, but instead is going for something timeless, a work of modern architecture that takes cues from history in a way that modernism hadn't done much but unlike postmodern architecture, the coin center design never crosses over into caricature. That says something about its architect, Robert Frasca, the F in ZGF, whose fingerprint is all over contemporary Portland. Not only the coin center, but the Oregon Convention Center, Tom McCall Waterfront Park, expansions to Portland International Airport, and specifically that glorious glass entry canopy. So the Coin Center is actually also part of a whole neighborhood that was transformed in the second half of the 20th century. Or more specifically, it was an immigrant neighborhood that was bulldozed in the name of urban renewal and built back up again with taller, more valuable buildings. It added some wonderful new spaces like the Halperin Sequence, a series of fountains culminating in the masterful Keller Fountain across Jefferson Street from the Coin, But this South Auditorium district gave the city a lasting scar when it comes to social equity. The Coin Center project was a late addition to what was known as this South Auditorium Urban Renewal Project, officially. 
1955, a mayor's advisory committee identified an 84-acre area at the southeast end of downtown, bounded by Market, Front, Arthur, and Fourth, as suitable for a land clearance and redevelopment project. Civic leaders wanted to use new federal legislation that had expanded the Housing Act of 1949 in order to clear what they called blight, or a vice district, from this part of downtown. Never mind that hundreds of Jewish and Italian families lived here, too. In 1966, the city extended the South Auditorium district boundaries north to include 26 more acres between Market and Jefferson Streets. The present-day Coin Center sits right along that expounded boundary, on a block bounded by 3rd, 4th, Clay, and Jefferson. By the standards of its developers and proponents, the South Auditorium project was a success. It prompted a 25-fold increase in assessed value and reportedly brought approximately 15,000 additional jobs to the city center. But it was undeniably part of a pattern in Portland and across the United States in this era. Urban renewal brought America new highways and parks and concert halls and condo buildings and offices, but it always seemed to claim neighborhoods where minorities lived. Even so, architectural height and the moral lows of urban renewal aren't the only stories here. After all, the Coin Center is an office and condo tower named for the TV news station that is headquartered in its basement. Before the tower was built, station KOYN, which had been located in an earlier building, agreed to vacate it in exchange for free rent in the new tower. The station got relegated to the basement, but Coin got one sweet deal. So for the last 35 years, some of the city's most venerable newscasters, Mike Donahue, Shirley Hancock, Kelly Day, Jeff Gianola, have sat at an anchor desk in the depths of this building. But I haven't even mentioned yet what may be the most truly significant history of this site, one that predates the Coin Center altogether. On this block in the early 20th century, back when it was still the residential neighborhood of South Portland, was a simple house at 249 Southwest Clay Street. It happened to be the residence and base of operations for Oregon's greatest women's suffrage leader, Abigail Scott Dunaway. She was a novelist, an author, a newspaper publisher, a journalist, and a political activist who founded the Equal Suffrage Association. Scott Dunaway had migrated to Oregon as a child in a covered wagon in the 1850s, but she's actually now a quintessentially modern urban historical figure who led Oregon to become just the seventh American state to pass a women's suffrage amendment. And because of her prolific writing, Abigail Scott Dunaway even became a nationally recognized figure who crossed paths with the great Susan B. Anthony. So today, in our final episode of this first season for In Search of Portland, we're going to share with you not two, but three interviews. First comes a talk with architect Jan Willemza of ZGF about the legacy of his former boss, the late Robert Frasca, and how the Coin Center achieved a kind of timelessness in an era of otherwise dated design that brought us parachute pants. Then our second interview features a man who, if I may borrow from The Simpsons, could easily be called the Kent Brockman of Portland. That would be longtime anchor and reporter Jeff Gianola of Coin News, who first started appearing on local airwaves in the 1980s. Then our third interview is with Jennifer Chambers, author of the new book, Abigail Scott Dunaway and Susan B. Anthony in Oregon. Hesitate no longer. Actually, that sounds like good advice. Let's hesitate no longer and flip this three-sided coin conversation into the air.
John Willemse is a partner with architecture firm ZGF, which has grown from its roots in Portland to include more than 600 professionals with offices in a variety of cities around the country, such as Seattle, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., New York City, and Vancouver, B.C. as well. In addition to receiving more than 1,000 design awards, ZGF has been honored with the American Institute of Architects' highest honor, the Architecture Firm Award, recognized for, quote, creatively transforming client needs and aspirations into elegant, inventive architectural form and establishing a standard of excellence and expectation of quality to which other firms aspire. They've also designed a host of landmarks around the city of Portland. The many projects Jan has worked on range from new children's hospitals in Portland and Denver to terminal expansions for Portland International Airport to a lot of work in the Bay Area for clients like UC San Francisco and Stanford and a number of tech companies, as well as work in Japan for a Japanese eco-district. Jan earned a Bachelor of Architecture degree from the University of Oregon, so he's a duck, uh, and spent most of his career at ZGF working with architect Bob Frasca, the F in ZGF, who drove the Coin Center design. So, Jan, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. So, the architecture of the Coin Tower strikes me as a piece of what I would call relatively timeless, maybe neo-historic architecture, for lack of a better term, uh, and yet it seems to have come from a time of, of what you might call even cartoonish postmodernism, especially if we judge by the Portland building nearby. And so, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the intent there and how consciously that was being done and, and how you see the building in regards to the concept of kind of timelessness and uh, the relationship between uh, uh, old and new and, and how we sort of recreate the past or, or honor the past or channel the past without letting it become caricature. Uh, well, I'll, I'll uh, just admit up front that I did not work on that building. Yeah, sure, um, sure. I was still a duck in college at, in architecture school at that time. Um, and coincidentally, it was right at the same time that Graves was doing the Portland building. Mm-hmm. And so they are a good comparison in terms of time frame. Um, I think that Bob Frasca always had this uh, sort of urbanist mindset, even though he was an architectural designer. And mm-hmm. his uh, graduate degree was actually from MIT in urban planning or city planning. Uh-huh. And so he always brought that um, as a driver of any of the designs he was involved with. And that included the Coin Tower. And Coin was, uh, I think, was an urban renewal district. It actually was founded in the late 50s. Yeah. There was a developer-led um, developer design competition uh, that included ZGF, and we were with Olympia and York. And um, Bob came up with one of his usual approaches to an urban intervention, which was to respond to context. Mm-hmm. Um, he always felt that the surrounding context, even if it might be modest, was often providing cues that were valuable mm-hmm. and that you could riff off of. Um, and so there was always some springing from the loins of the city, if you will, of, of any of these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, the other interesting driver, I studied the building because we did some interventions later mm-hmm. on in its life. Um, it was a very much a program-driven building and a, and a mixed-use building in a way that certainly wasn't common back then. Yeah. Um, you know, it had uh, retail on, in its base. It had a lot of office components. It had recording studios, uh, TV studios for, mm-hmm. for Coin. Even a movie theater. And even a movie theater um, as part of its sort of retail arcade and then condominiums on top. So when you see the mass of the building, it steps up to a point and gets narrower towards the top. And I think it's natural that it's referentially historical because you, if you go back to the Chicago Tribune 
design competition in the 20s. Um, you saw a lot of that thing in, in buildings of that era. In this case, it was function. It was program and function that was sort of driving the massing. And I was curious about it uh, when I didn't know anything about it, why the break broke where it did in the mass from the bigger mass at the base to the smaller mass at the condominium level uh, and then to the point. So while it feels like you know, that, that there may have been a, a more superficial historical driver for that breakup. It was actually function and program that drove that. Uh, certainly there are some cues there in the way the building steps and cascades that feels like of the postmodern era. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bob did those things very intentional to have an effect that tied it to the city and to the context. So I think about like the southwest, I think it's the southwest corner of the building, where the retail arcade kind of diagonally inserts itself into the base of the building and there's mm-hmm. this cascade of sort of glass cube forms that step down from where the theater was and some of the other retail elements were to make this uh, welcoming gesture to the auditorium fountain, the yeah. forecourt fountain. Yeah, and, yeah, you've got one of the masterpieces of American landscape architecture um, diagonally across that that intersection right. there. So, you know, Bob's like, well, why wouldn't you make a, a very substantial gesture to that? And mm-hmm. so he pushed the tower, ZGF pushed the tower to the northeast away from that fountain and made more space for a forecourt plaza, if you will, at the base of the building that was diagonal across the intersection from the fountain. So those were the kind of cues that ZGF's work has regularly been built on. And then the functional aspects of complexity in the program gets resolved very intentionally. So I think the entrances to the coin offices was on the north side. The condominium entry was very understated on the west side. Mm-hmm. And then the, the retail connection with that little plaza was on the southwest corner. Mm-hmm. So in looking back at the original um, competition entry, it really was about activating and connecting different parts of, that, of the city in that location. Uh, and therefore paid a lot of attention to what faces of the building were doing what on what streets and Mm -hmm. what the intersections were like. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of the materiality, um, there's always been sort of a sense of craft in what uh, Bob Frasca and Brooks Gunsel and Norm Zimmer all tried to do. And so it it wasn't a superficial applique of something. It was a substantial masonry vocabulary that was intended to be Timeless is a good word, but I think responsible and a good use of resources and modest. Um, I mean, in 1980, the word sustainable design, I don't think, had been coined yet. But um, it was always very much uh, an attitude at ZGF. It's one of the reasons I joined the firm of having respect for the resources, not just the natural resources, but the client's resources and the people you have and um, being responsible to the community as well. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about ZGF today. Uh, a couple of years ago, I believe Architect Magazine named named the firm the number one U.S. architecture firm based on a number of different calculations. And and so, um, you know, uh, uh, Frasca passed away a few years ago. And and you know, I wonder if you could talk about you know what the firm has become over time. And it's it's an interesting firm because it's had this long evolution and it's existed for different eras. And so, you know, how is ZGF different? Maybe not just since Mr. Frasca passed away, but how is ZGF different um, compared to the, the uh, early '80s uh, or mm-hmm. you know some of the time when you first arrived? Well, in the '80s, obviously. Um 
Portland was kind of the center of the ZGF universe. It was the founding office. It's 60 some years old now. And so in the 80s, pretty much all of ZGF's practice was centered or focused out of Portland. We were just beginning to expand into Seattle. We won the Fred Hutch uh, competition oh, for the, the Fred lab. Hutchinson yeah. Cancer Center, yeah. Yeah, right on Lake in Union Seattle. there in yeah. Seattle. And that basically allowed the Seattle office to come into being. Um, uh, very shortly thereafter, we were getting a lot of interest from U the UC system and other uh, academic institutions in California, and we opened LA. So, and you know, at the time of the Coin Tower, I mean, Portland was kind of it. Now we have actually 750 people in six offices in North America, and sort of organically we grew. And so the biggest contrast for me between then and now is we're just a different firm with multiple leaders and we're still, we still consider ourselves one firm in terms of a profit center. We mm -hmm. all share equally in the successes and the not so high successes. We always try to approach each project as an opportunity for unique problem solving. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that attitude is something that we still have um, running through us, um, which is, something of a fearlessness about taking on a new problem and having the optimism that we can solve it in a good way, in a mm -hmm. unique way, in an innovative way. Yeah. Going back to the Coin Center Tower for a moment, um, I'd like to ask you about that building as it relates to kind of what seems like an ongoing conversation and one that we're having a lot lately about architectural height in the center city. That could mean different things depending on what part of the central city. You could be talking about downtown versus mm -hmm. the Pearl versus Old Town. Um, but uh, I'm curious about um, Portland getting taller and the reticence some people have to that. And and some of this is a conversation we've been having for a couple of generations. And, and you know, we ha used to sort of have certain principles or certain ideas to describe the fact that Portland, uh, you know, didn't have a lot of tall buildings. You know, people, uh, we're, one of our nicknames is Stumptown. And, and that, I think that's not just for the tree stumps, it's for the stumpy buildings. But, you know, there were, <clears throat> I, I, I've heard people describe eloquently, you know, valid reasons for that, that, that Mount Hood is a better icon for our skyline than any Space Needle or Empire State Building would be for those cities. And, and there's a humility in yielding to nature in that. And and also the way we do things like stepping down to the river. And uh, I've even heard it said that Portland as a river city compared to, say, an ocean port city, you know, doesn't have that kind of obvious need, that kind of almost phallic obsession with, with tall buildings and height. Um, what do you think about, say, a 75-story building in Portland or a 60-story building in Portland in the downtown core? What do you think about the some of these grapplings with height we've uh, mm -hmm. been having recently and throughout the story of Portland's architecture, uh, architectural history? It's an interesting question. I mean, with, with the population growth on the coast, Portland's certainly going to see that. And so if you want to respect the precepts of the urban growth boundary and densification in downtown, it, it's only logical that you're going to accept taller buildings and mm -hmm. greater density. But density doesn't necessarily equal height. That's right. And so, you know, I turn to the Pearl, which is the, you know, um, back in the 80s, we worked on the river, what was called the River District Plan. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like it's, a good object lesson in the mix of respecting things that have some historical or 
referential quality and you retain those if they're three stories or five or six stories like the Myron Frank warehouse and mm -hmm. things like that. Which became the Vestas Which is the Vestas headquarters now and I think GED is there, Girding England's there. Um, and then you look at the Cosmo, you know, closer to the river, much taller. Mm -hmm. um, and the Pearl seems to have done a nice job, you know, trading air rights and having some taller buildings mixed in with lower buildings because you actually get view corridors and you get light down to the floor of the city. And it also helps that Portland's on the 200 by 200 block, yeah. which a lot of cities don't have that luxury. Yeah, we're so blessed to have our small blocks. Yeah, we? yeah. I mean, it just, it it limits density in, in, in and of itself when you just look at the basic geometry of a plat of mm -hmm. the city with the roads. I think the buildable area is like 60% instead of 70 or 80% in other places. And mm -hmm. so you necessarily have more walkable streets, um, better light, better views. And then if you have that mix of up and down, mm -hmm. um, you end up with the Pearl where it's not perfect, but it provides a pretty livable, unique urban environment that has a fair density. Now, it doesn't have the density of New York or Hong Kong or Singapore or any of those places, but I, I think there are lessons to be learned there, especially when you get outside the downtown core. I think the downtown core can tolerate some taller buildings, but if you look at like Old Town mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know some of the opportunities down there that various landowners have to, to build some height, I, I think following the general philosophical approach of the River District, of the Pearl District, is a good one. Mm -hmm. Um, whether Portland can tolerate a 60-story building, probably 70, eh, we might get uncomfortable. Um, you know, Portland is, I mean, I, I was born in Portland. I grew up down the river. Um, I think modest and uh, some humility usually comes into most of the conversations. And it comes from this respect for the physical environment, for, the, for that balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and now whether Mount Hood is the best icon for, for Portland, Oregon, I'd, you know, be interested in hearing a debate about that. But, um, I think it's interesting that the West Hills kind of wrap the downtown a little bit. It's almost like an amphitheater and yeah. city watching can be as beautiful as, um, as mountain watching. Mm -hmm. Um, if you provide those view corridors and you respect the fact that everybody has a neighbor and... Uh, you do things intelligently and uh, value the context. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jan, thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Jeff Giannola is here. He spent the past 36 years in local television news, and I think it's pretty safe to say he's the best-known anchor of the past quarter century in Portland, if not more. He grew up in San Diego and began interning at station KGTV while attending San Diego State University, so he's an Aztec. In 1980, Jeff became an award-winning news reporter at KEYT in Santa Barbara, and he was part of the local press corps covering President Ronald Reagan at his nearby ranch. In 1983, Jeff was hired by KATU here in Portland, Channel 2 on your dial, as a reporter and weekend weather forecaster. But two years later, in 1985, he was promoted to main anchor for KATU. And I must say, I still remember that as a viewer because it's maybe the only time, except for maybe, I guess, like Al Roker, that I'd seen someone cross the weatherman anchor divide. Um, but for much of the 80s and 90s, Jeff and his colleague Julie Emery were perhaps the city's best-known anchor team. And then in 1998, he moved to Coin News 6, and he's been there ever since. 
Jeff is also a longtime fixture in our community, including as the president and founder of the Wednesday's Child Foundation, and as the producer of an excellent documentary about legendary local architect Pietro Belusky called No Perfect Dancers. Jeff, given your experience, I, I kind of feel like somebody has switched our chairs and that really you should be doing the interviewing here. Yeah. But <laughs> but having said that, ha, uh, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Oh, Brian, I this is my pleasure to be here. This is fun. I wonder if you could talk about wanting to work in television initially when you were young. And I think I read that in uh, growing up in San Diego, there was a TV station near you maybe when you were a kid, like on your paper route. Is that right? Yeah, KGTV in East San Diego. So... If you know anything about San San Diego, that's about eight miles east of San Diego, and that's where I grew up. It's where my mom and a brother still live in that house. I come from a really big family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's just say we were not well off, and so I had two paper routes at the time that actually helped pay for the family. So it wasn't just my pocket money. It helped pay to keep the family going. But I would deliver two papers to KGTV, and I would go in there and drop them off at the front desk, and they had a little commissary area, and I figured out how you could steal ice cream from the ice cream machine, and I'd get two ice cream sandwiches. Then they had a viewing area, and I'd watch them do the news. Wow. And I thought, this is what I wanted to do, you know. Uh, as a newspaper boy, I mean, I used to sit there and read the newspaper all the time, but and I was so mesmerized by that, so... That's what I wanted to do. And then later I became an intern at that very same station. So let me ask you a little bit about the Coin Center itself. Like, uh, of course, as you know, it was it was part of the Big South Auditorium Urban Renewal uh, District or project. And my understanding is that Coin's longtime studios were located um, kind of on one of the lots adjacent to where the Coin to- Tower mm-hmm. now is. And, and so, you know, what do you understand about, um, if, I guess for people that don't know, Coin, Coin 6's... Coin News 6's studios have long been in the basement of the Coin Tower. And so what's your understanding of that whole deal and how it's worked out, you know, with different owners over the years and and stuff like that? Well, it's really interesting story. The original Coin building was just this single level, ugly looking thing down there between where the Marriott Hotel is and there was a flat lot and then Mm -hmm. where Coin is now. And when they approached whoever owned Coin then, uh, they said, you know, we'll give you X million of dollars, but we need to tear this down. We're building the coin. And whoever it was was very smart. They said, just give us space in your new building at a dollar a year for 99 years, renewable lease, 99 years. It has to be the most incredible real estate deal in all of Portland. Uh-huh. And so that probably hasn't gone over real well with every owner because there's been several owners of the coin building. Uh-huh. But the current owner is wonderful. Uh really likes coin uh you know there there's some owners that have had that building and didn't like the fact coin was in there mm-hmm. but but this current owner is just wonderful and as you well know they've remodeled the owners remodeled the coin lobby of the yeah. building when you walk in yeah and it's uh it's it's pretty amazing what they've done with it. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and that brings up another question. You know that uh, given that you're interested in architecture yourself, of course, and and you've made a Pietro Belusky documentary, and you've been involved mm-hmm. for years with the Architectural Foundation of Oregon and their fundraising dinners. What do you what do you make of the architecture of the Coin Center itself? You know, it's it's kind of a little bit of a, a building from the '80s, from 1984, that maybe recalls some Art Deco towers, uh, famous ones like the Chrysler Building the Empire State Building when it kind of tapers to the top. And and yet 
what's interesting to me also about the coin in part is that, um, you know, it arrived in a time of postmodern architecture yes. where people were kind of um, introducing historical references for the first time. And, and the knock against most postmodernism, including the Portland building, one of its poster children, is that it was too cartoonish. And yet um, ZGF managed to create something that was kind of neo-historic, but in my mind, a little bit more timeless. What, what's your take on that? I, I, would, I would tend to agree with you. Now, there's the controversy that came with the coin building was that was the first building where Everyone said this blocks my view of Mount Hood mm -hmm. as I come out of the tunnel, mm -hmm. and that's and there's people that are still angry about that. Yep. And now look what we've got. I mean, with building heights, I mean we're not only blocking Mount Hood now, we're blocking views of the river now. Mm -hmm. You know, but but so that was a controversy that went up. But I agree with you. I think it's neat in a city like Portland to have a building that's so iconic, like the Portland. It might be a little cartoony. It mm -hmm. might be something, but in a way, it's kind of our own little Chrysler building, yeah. I think. And I do think there's something uh, timeless about it. It's like there, you could draw uh, like a kind of outline of the Portland skyline and people would know in just maybe a pen stroke or two, which one was the coin center yeah. just because of it. It, it being the only one that kind of tapers to the top and that brick. And and what's nice now is for years, Coin has been down there in what I call kind of a dead corner of downtown. Mm -hmm. You had the Marriott across the street, then you had that big flat parking lot. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're building a 15-story uh, condo or apartment building there with retail on the bottom. Just last year, the Porter Hotel was completed right across from Coin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That whole area is starting to come alive. And so that Coin building's having a lot more significance now mm -hmm. being there because it kind of anchored by itself there next to the Keller. And when there was an event at the Keller, well, then, you know, the Morton's Steakhouse inside the Coin building was busy and stuff. But, you know, Morton's at one time considered moving out of there because it was mm -hmm. dead most of the time. Uh -huh. They wanted to move to a more central location like the Ruth Chris Steakhouse did right into the center of downtown. And they thought, and then they thought, no. Well, well, now you're finding businesses starting to come to that area. That area is really starting to come alive now. So. I think it's really interesting, this idea that, that cities and neighborhoods take, you know, half century, yes. century more to develop. And, and um, whether one looks back at the creation of the South Auditorium District and thinks it's good or bad, you know, wiping out these immigrant neighborhoods and so forth, um, you know, even if you set aside that question, um, and just look at the the success of the South Auditorium District as a kind of urban place. It it does seem like it's literally taken decades to to start to grow into itself and be a kind of area or a place. And and given that you are still doing the eleven o'clock newscast, uh -huh. what's it like around there when you come out that time of night? Maybe sometimes you might be just you know heading out in your car or you, something. You know what the still... most interesting thing is mm. is when they have a show that's either breaking down at the Keller or arriving, so you see the tour buses and you see them. And I think that's fascinating. You see them backing up the semis to the door and they're loading in equipment. And you go, oh, what show is that? Uh -huh. Oh, you know, uh, it's Wicked is coming. And to me, that's something exciting about that. And you see that in the middle of the night, like at, at you know, that's when they get all this stuff done. Uh -huh. And and that's kind of fun. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and you see, you know, Morton's is pretty much closed up by then. And you see people kind of coming out of Morton's. But I don't know if uh, your listeners will remember this. If anyone, if if anyone does, I, I think it's pretty amazing. But that restaurant space, mm -hmm. when Coin first opened, was a twenty-four-seven restaurant called Thirteen Coins, huh. which they have the 
original one in Seattle, right by Union Station. Oh, in that Seattle, vaguely rings a bell. Coins, mm-hmm. and it's and it's oh, pasta and me. I mean, wonderful food. Open twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five days a year. They had one that was the original restaurant where Morton's was, but. Portland couldn't support something like that. We were still pretty provincial. I'm not even sure we could now. Really. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't last long. But that was amazing. You would go in there. You could sit at bar stools and and watch them cook up the pasta. And and and, and it was an it was a wonderful place back and that, then. It and, only lasted a year or two. Oh wow, is that Thir- all? Thirteen yeah. coins, and that was part of the coin building. Then you had thirteen coins. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. And my other memory is the coin cinemas. You know, seeing yes. uh, some of my first kind of indie movies there. Like uh, I remember seeing like Sex Lies and Videotape and and uh, uh, the Crying Game and some of those films. Uh, I think actually back when I was a movie critic, the first daytime critic screening I ever went to was, was at there. the coin cinemas, and I, I, I felt like I was you know ready to pinch myself. Yeah, well, we had yeah we did some events there with Coin as well. Yeah, it was a shame when when that closed. A lot of people felt that was a shame. They had that little marquee out mm-hmm. front, that ground level marquee, mm-hmm. and now it's just a regular. Sign. And that's part of making a neighborhood too, having that yes. kind of thing. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, well, Jeff, thank you so much for talking with us. It's really been a pleasure and uh, really fun to pick your brain. Oh, wonderful to be here. All right, thank you. Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials, building beauty that lasts. We're happy to have writer Jennifer Chambers joining us by phone from her home in Veneta, Oregon. Jennifer is the co-owner and contributing editor at Groundwaters Publishing, a literary journal that just published its first anthology last year. She's also the author of several works of both fiction and nonfiction, including Remarkable Oregon Women, Revolutionaries and Visionaries, published by the History Press in 2015, The Self-Advocacy Toolbox, published by Creative Space in 2014, and most notably for our purposes, the book Abigail Scott Dunaway and Susan B. Anthony in Oregon, Hesitate No Longer, published by the History Press last year. Jennifer, thanks very much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Um, For starters, I'd like to ask you about Abigail Scott Dunaway's journey to Oregon. And uh, um, some listeners, I wonder, might be surprised a bit to learn that she actually came here in a covered wagon, given that she's this figure of the 20th century. And so how much do you feel like that is part of her narrative and part of something that shaped her as as a person, given what she went on to do? Um, First of all, you know, being a a woman very much of her time, this was the 1850s when they were traveling overland. Uh-huh. Uh, her her father was really in charge of their their family's fortunes, and um, so her family was really at the whim of her father, who decided that kind of on his own that the family was going to cross on the Oregon Trail because he was very much a man who wanted to 
find his next big thing and was looking for himself and what he wanted. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, not, not that they weren't up for the journey, but her mother was quite ill. And, uh, and Abigail really had to do a lot and had to fill a lot of roles on that journey. She actually, um, it, <laughs> it was quite a bit of great foreshadowing for my purposes because Abigail's job um, on, on the trip, her father gave them all jobs, and, and her job was to write a journal. So she had to put one line every day about what they did on the Oregon Trail. Um, and I can just see how, on one hand, going through that experience, she would might say to herself, you know, it's not fair that a man should have this, uh, should put my life at risk like that, and I want to have mm-hmm. more control over my own life. But at the same time, going through some of those trials um, and and gaining some of the experiences she does and about um, not only writing, but self-reliance and, and leadership, mm-hmm. that, that it becomes probably, I guess, a, a crucible, which really does shape her. Oh, very much so. And, yeah. and there were a lot of funny little things I learned by, by reading her, her journal at that time. Um, things like she had become aware of the work of Amelia Bloomer, who was pop, the woman who popularized the bloomers. Uh-huh. And she and her sister scandalized everyone on the Oregon Trail by wearing them. <laughs> <It was hot. laughs> they were walking on the trail. Why not wear bloomers instead of eight skirts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she, she makes it to the Pacific Northwest, and, and I seem to recall that she spent many years in, in uh, my home county of Yamhill County, as well as mm-hmm. Clackamas County, uh, uh, living mm-hmm. on farms. And so I wondered, you, I, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about the move she made to Portland around the age of 37, I guess. That would have been in 1871. And um, of course, that would seem to coincide with the rise of her activism. And, and so I wondered what the story was was there it, it, did she actually come to portland in some ways to 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 join that cause or or how did that all work out with her making that journey from the farm to the city her her story really is about creating something from very limited resources um after she had married her husband um up up in portland area Yamhill area uh-huh. um her husband actually uh in a really ironic twist her husband lost their farm uh, because he had secured it against a friend of his uh, debts. Uh. So, um, so Abigail didn't have to go to work, and she started a school and then um, also a millinery. And uh, after a while, she and her husband, and, and this whole time, she had really become aware of, of the work of all of the, the different suffragists in the, in the pre-suffragist era, uh, the different women who were fighting for for female rights, um, while she was a shopkeeper and while she was a milliner. And then she and her husband decided to move to Portland. She had family up there who was helping her with her business. And it was it was very interesting. She wrote in one of her letters about how she'd have women come and, and try and get clothes from her and hats from her. And they had they didn't even get to have control of the money that they made themselves by selling eggs. And that sort of started the germ of why she might need to fight for other people's rights. Uh-huh. She was more and more aware of the different women and had been corresponding with women. She actually wrote for different farm newspapers during the whole time that they were farming. And she kind of wrote like a Dear Abby-ish for farm wives oh, sort wow. of poem. <laughs> um, <laughs> it wasn't necessarily um, like suffrage related at that point, but she definitely followed the work of, of women around the country who were who were really starting to make that noise. Yeah. 
the funny thing that started me writing my particular book, my last book, uh, about she and Susan B was because she was sort of, <laughs> I guess now we would call it like a almost an internet stalker. Kind of thing. <laughs> and <laughs> she would follow Susan B. Anthony's work uh-huh. um, in all the all of Susan's newspapers and, and other different publications and would find out and see that Susan was going to be speaking all around the country. And wow, she just happened to be going to San Francisco on a buying trip at the same time that Susan was going to be speaking. So she just happened to make sure that she was in the hotel where Susan was staying. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and be able to introduce herself and say, oh, hey, think you might want to talk about women's rights with me and uh-huh. maybe you can come up to Portland and you're able to secure that. Wow. You know, that's a, a, a kind of leadership skill or a kind of, you know, shrewdness or uh, mm-hmm. cleverness that, that goes into a lot of um, success, a lot of people's mm-hmm. different kinds of success. It, it's the kind of leadership skill, really. And so um, what do you make of the kind of blend of skills that she, she really had? What was she best at? Well, I think she was an incredible speaker. And she was, her writing was actually, her first novel was pretty universally panned. Uh, <laughs> it was called, her first novel was Captain Gray's Company. Um, it was actually the first novel that was commercially published in Oregon. Oh, that's right. And, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. In 1859. And, and people really didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she, she was a little bit discouraged. It was kind of roughly based on her overland uh, journey, um, but fictionalized or romanticized. Uh-huh. She was a wonderful communicator. She was, she didn't really go to a whole lot of school uh-huh. because of the farm life that they had. She kind of was, you know, she'd go to school for a little bit and then she'd be needed for the harvest, that sort of thing. Or her family would be suddenly out of money and she would have to work on a, on a different area. Um, so because of the variety of experiences she had, I think her, her biggest skill was thinking on her feet and really making something out of very little. Yeah, yeah. And that's something else you really have to be as a kind of consensus builder as well. Uh, not Ooh. just someone who who makes good arguments, but can sort of attract people to, to join your cause or to, to, to say, I want to, you know, I want to row that boat with you. I'm curious uh, if there's perhaps any even modest growing interest again in, in Abigail Scott Dunaway today in your mind, given the kind of moment that we're experiencing or going through in history with things like the, the Me Too movement and, and mm-hmm. some of the conversations that existed around uh, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, even though these are to a lot of people dark times in some ways, it's also mm-hmm. a kind of, you know, perhaps liberating time for especially women in some ways. And so um, what do you think about how we look, how history looks at, or how interests might be growing in in a figure like her, um, given the kind of moment that our society is experiencing today? Oh, I think very much. I think um, certainly in my experience, I have been invited to speak at so many different places where people, they know that she did something for the vote in Oregon, but they don't know how much she did, so that she really devoted her whole life, um, her whole adult life to helping women achieve more. And, and it was, it's interesting. There's everybody I speak to, they're like, Oh, that was her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. I went to that school that was named after her or that road or, yeah. Um, and I know that actually there's quite a bit of uh, more interest, even on a national level, um, 
at the Women's History Organization in Washington, D.C. I've spoken with them a little bit. Um, I know they're going to be doing, I've heard, that there's a possibility of doing uh, an exhibit on women's rights and women getting the, the right in Oregon in particular at the Oregon Historical Society as well. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I've just spoken with, with people who've said that that's a possibility. Um, but I, I know that with the anniversary in uh, 2020, with that coming up, yeah. uh, I personally have been speaking to a lot of different people about Abigail and the impact that she's had. Um, how much of a national figure or how, how nationally known do you think Abigail Scott Dunaway was, or do you think she's more strictly a kind of Oregon um, hero? Well, there was very much of an East Coast, West Coast kind of movement with, within the women's movement. The people who lived on the East Coast generally had aligned their sympathies with not only women's, women's rights, excuse me, but um, it, women's rights were aligned very much with temperance. Uh. And Abigail Scott Dunaway and many of the West Coast feminists, I mean, it's a huge generalization, but um, largely there were two different camps that those on the West that did not choose, because they really thought it was apples and oranges and you weren't going to win the fight if you mingled it with temperance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, on the East Coast then, they thought they went hand in hand. So, Interesting. Um, Abigail, she did travel nationally, and and she was she is known nationally. She's definitely more of a West Coast, West Side of the United States sort of heroine. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Love it. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland. Uh, I really enjoy talking about this, and I'm really glad uh, that your book is out there. Thank you. I'm I'm really glad I got to speak. Thanks. then that just about wraps up episode 12 and i'd like to thank our three j's jan willemza jeff gianola and jennifer chambers for offering their insights in putting together this episode i started thinking about not only the layers of history that exist on this site from abigail scott dunaway to the south auditorium district the coin center and the tv station that bears its name but also the neighborhood and how it feels to walk its streets the coin center is quite centrally located It's just a block away from the magical Keller Fountain to the south. It's just three blocks from City Hall, I believe, and the park block's there. And there's Tom McCall Waterfront Park just about three or four blocks to the east. Yet, at about five o'clock or not long after, this area starts to feel a little bit like a dead zone. I mean, sure, there are evening events at the Keller Auditorium nearby and customers from the nearby Marriott Hotel passing by, But until recently, this area appeared much more devoid of people at night than elsewhere downtown. Thankfully, that's started to change a bit recently with construction of more hotels and residential units in the immediate area near the Coin Center. But as Jan Willemza talked about in our first interview, actually it was construction of the Coin Center in the 80s that began that process, adding vitality. Now, all they need to do is knock down the many parking garages that seem to plague this area, because in any kind of dense urban city, parking belongs underground. The South Auditorium District that the Coin Center belongs to is a reminder that great neighborhoods take decades, even sometimes centuries, to grow into themselves. But it's easy to forget, or sometimes to deliberately forget. I mean, 
We wipe huge swaths of land clean and demolish the history there. And then we wonder why the new districts we build, like the South Auditorium District in the mid-century, or more recently, the South Waterfront, feel alien and antiseptic. That's not just because we often replace moderately sized three- and five-story buildings with towers, which decidedly changes the vibe, but also because until the trees have had time to grow tall and people have had time to put down roots of their own over generations, a neighborhood is not really a neighborhood, arguably. And if there aren't any old buildings around, something feels off, like a movie set of a neighborhood instead of the real thing. As I mentioned, this is the 12th and final episode in our first season of In Search of Portland, and in looking at the dozen buildings that we've featured, I think about 10 of those have been ones constructed in the first 30 years or so of the 20th century. Of course, a couple of projects we featured, like the Mercy Corps headquarters or the Widening Kennedy buildings, they were transformative enough in the renovations that you could actually call them works of 21st century architecture. But still, they too were essentially old building renovations or expansions. So the Coin Center building and the Portland building were our outliers from the 1980s. But even that, of course, was more than 35 years ago. So I think you get what I'm saying. It's not to say I don't love newer buildings. I think of the cultural crossing complex at the Portland Japanese Garden, for example, which is wonderful. This trio of works completed just a few years ago by one of the world's leading architects, Kengo Kuma. I also think of handsome residential buildings of recent years here by the likes of Holst Architecture or Works Progress Architecture. Or I think of the expansion of Providence Park a few months ago by Allied Works, or parks like Jameson Square by Peter Walker, and the terrific Portland Aerial Tram by Angelil Graham. And we'll get to some of those stories, I think, in the following seasons. Uh, the Portland Aerial Tram story, I think, in particular, is a fun one, uh, and I love hearing about architect Sarah Graham battling Mayor Sam Adams at the time. It's a good story. But my day job as an architecture and design journalist, while I'm blessed to have it, is overwhelmingly devoted to new works. And so for this podcast, I wanted to turn away from the latest additions to our urban fabric and instead mostly take a closer look at the places that have been here for a while, places that have been able to take on generations of stories and to really be lived in. So far, we've mostly been focused on central city Portland as well. In part, that's because, honestly, a lot of the material for this podcast I've drawn from a book manuscript I've been working on for a couple of years, and that book, or at least book one, is focused on downtown, Old Town, and the Pearl. But in season two, I want to go beyond that, so you can look for us to continue venturing a little further beyond the urban core, as we began to do late this first season with the Hazel Hall House in northwest Portland and the Pine Street Theater Building in southeast. Next season, I'm interested in chasing down stories of, say, Martin Luther King and the Beatles and Beverly Cleary in north and northeast Portland. I'm interested in more stories of everyday Portlanders as well who weren't so famous or have been unjustly forgotten. We'll be looking in season two at both massive arenas and modest houses, and not just buildings, but parks too and other open spaces. After all, the interest here is not so much architecture, but great places. Often we look to our buildings for permanence. We use architectural terms like foundation or brick and mortar to imply some kind of staying power. But the reality, of course, is that cities and buildings all change and come and go over time. That makes the places we love more fleeting than we might imagine. An earthquake or a volcano in our geologically volatile Pacific Northwest could alter our landscape fast, 
especially our built environment. So can developers in some cases, for that matter. It's humbling and maybe a bit frightening. But that's all the more reason to document and celebrate our great places and to pass down their stories, now and continuously. Or at least through another podcast season or two. Thanks for coming on the journey with us so far. Quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks and cheers to them. Thanks as well to our producers, Amalia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Spross. A big thank you as well to my musician friends in the band Beauty Pill, and especially songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast music. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thanks to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artworks to go with all of our episodes on In Search of Portland. Those artworks can be found on our website. In fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Like I said, this concludes the first season of In Search of Portland, and it really has been a lot of fun. As a print journalist working on this podcast with X-Ray and working at their studios in North Portland, it's been a little bit like a fantasy camp. So thank you to Jefferson Smith and everybody at this nonprofit station for doing what you do. We'll be back with season two in the months ahead. But in the meantime, thanks again for listening, truly. Bye-bye for now.